Hi, everyone. Uh, good afternoon. I think it's time. Uh, let's get started. Uh, I really want to thank you all for being here because I feel like I've run a marathon over the last four days, and I'm pretty impressed with the uh, turnout here. So thanks for uh, taking the time to be here. Uh, my name is Vinay Venkatraghavan. I'm a solution architect at Palo Alto Networks. And I'd like to introduce uh, Shankar Chandrasekhar, who's the VP of Cybersecurity at uh, Moody's. And uh, let's get going. So today we're going to talk about uh, uh, Moody's, and the title is Moody's Deploying Cloud-Native Architectures with Automation. So as you can imagine, the main themes of our uh, talk today is to cover how you can deploy uh, strong security along with automation for all your enterprise workloads on AWS. So let me give you a quick overview of uh, some of the cloud automation drivers and, a, and an overview of what we're going to cover here today. I'd like to start off at the bottom, right? So agility. So what does that mean, right? I mean, my perspective is that you know, uh, leveraging the cloud is no longer a cost decision primarily. I think that's a secondary driver nowadays. I think the main driver is agility, the ability to deploy fast, make changes, iterate, get code pushed out faster, right? And then it's also this move, which agility also with it comes DevOps. And then we're going to show you, hopefully, how we can change DevOps into DevSecOps to show that security can match the speed of your DevOps and your, and your application line of business uh, teams. And the reality of the day is we all have uh, either a hybrid cloud or a multi-cloud posture. So we're going to show how a lot of the primitives that we're going to talk about today can be applied both on AWS and even a multi-cloud posture. So as we thought through this, um, uh, this concept of a cloud automation, cloud security automation stack uh, surface. So I'm going to talk more about that, but you know it's very similar to the OSI stack, and I'll delve deeper into that. And this combined with a lot of the native uh, Palo Alto Network's automation capabilities where we are trying to stay in step to meet the requirements of both our cloud service providers, our, our enterprise users, to show how we can help them move at the speed of the cloud and make sure that our primitives match what you actually need. So we'll talk about that. And then we're also going to talk about, Shankar is going to go deep into how you can actually apply a lot of these primitives to build strong security posture for enterprise production-grade applications on AWS. And then while we were going through this process, another very, uh, uh, very good uh, outcome was, you know, oftentimes we build monolithic architectures, right? I mean, this is not going to cut it because we need to reiterate, we need to make changes. So this concept of composable automation ecosystem. So hopefully you will see that what we're going to talk about today also highlights this capability that it's not monolithic, it's highly composable. And I like to think about this like share libraries, right? It's something, it does one thing well, and then you can use that as building blocks to build other, uh, other aspects of your system. And then uh, second to last is this concept of distributable security. So this goes in line with this whole concept of agility, right? Which is you, don't, you want to uh, enable your line of business applications, your app teams who want to move very fast. But you, for, from a security practitioner's standpoint, you also need the security, the visibility, the ability to audit. But if you can have best of both worlds, I mean, I think that's the best way. And everybody can. It's a win-win situation. So that's this concept of distributable security. So we'll talk about what that really looks like. And last but not least, and as we go through, Shankar is really, really going to highlight how Moody's has really, really benefited, and all these capabilities really helped Moody's build out best practices, architectures that help them move at the speed of cloud. Definitely. I think, I, I think I'll go much deeper into every single aspect and every single use case. And uh, what we are trying to explain here is basically, you, you see all these bullets, we're taking every bullet into a separate use case, and at the end, trying to integrate everything together to see how, when everything is integrated with the network stack, with automation, with security, how does the final product turn out to be? So that's kind of what I'm going to go in yeah. depth. Absolutely. 
So let's uh, just, uh, uh, this is more of a level slide, set slide, but let's talk about the needs for automation, right? As I already talked about it, you know, the need of the day, and it is the reality, is, you know, our development teams are moving really, really fast. That's why we're in the cloud. You know, they're, they're developing faster, they're integrating faster, they need to push out, they need to go through, but the stages haven't changed, right? You need to move through dev, test, prod. So you need automation. The whole point about this is to say that any kind of a manual process is just not going to work, right? It's not going to cut it. And as I'll talk about it later, anybody, and I'm sure you guys have built this and you can feel the pain, you know, if you're trying to craft this manually, I mean, it's a recipe for disaster, right? So that's the whole point. You know, your automation is, is, is a key stakeholder in this whole thing. And then let's talk about, you also want the, this concept of improved security. So what does that mean? You know, this is this combination where a, a, a security company like Palo Alto, if, you know, you use the native cloud uh, security capabilities of AWS, such as uh, security groups and ACLs and NACLs, but that gives you layer three, layer four security. But that combined with Palo Alto's very deep, fine-grained layer seven capabilities where you're actually able to script security policies based on layer seven app ID, user ID capabilities to script policy gives you a very, very strong uh, security posture. So that's that concept of we, wanna, we want security, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a table stake, but we want better security, right, in the cloud. And then this with concepts of increased agility and you want to reduce your effort. That's where automation comes in and that's where we're gonna talk about all these templates that we have built to you actually want to minimize the effort to actually reach your goal. That's the whole point. And then this, we're also gonna talk about this concept of how do we change? I mean, security has always been this. Traditionally, it's had this view as being a, a roadblock, right? They don't move as fast. But how do we change this concept? I mean, it has to be injected into your process. It's not an afterthought, right? So it, you have to move from being DevOps to DevSecOps. And how all these primitives of using Terraform and security as code actually help you leverage and get into that kind of a cadence where it's no longer DevOps, but it's DevSecOps. So all these concepts of automation, infrastructure as code, really help you accelerate cloud adoption. So this brings us to this concept of this cloud security automation stack. So we're going to start at the bottom as well here. So the first layer, I mean, I really like to think about this like the OSI stack, right? Each layer has a specific purpose. So the first layer is building out your infrastructure. So we, in conjunction, I mean, we were very fortunate to have a fantastic design partner at Moody's where we were able to build this, you know, we, we, Shankar brought up a, a lot of uh, very tough problems, but we were able to solve those problems and we were also able to automate all of that, right? And so that's the concept here. So you currently, these are all available on GitHub, by the way, so before I forget to mention that, so we, I'll, I'll talk about that. But, you know, you want to build out your infrastructure. So there are Terraform templates to build out your infrastructure and you build out very complex infrastructures, best practice architectures, right? So the next layer is once you built out your infrastructure, you want to make sure that you have to have the right security posture. So that's that security layer. So Palo Alto is the first security vendor to have a Terraform provider. Now you can actually deploy your infrastructure using Terraform, for example, and you can actually configure all your policies across all your different firewalls using, uh, using Terraform. So that's this concept of security as code, right? So now you can reason about your infrastructure as code, you can reason about your security as code, and then we keep going. It doesn't finish there. So the next layer is operations. As you know that uh, last year, Amazon, AWS announced Guard Duty, which was a service that uh, you know, aggregated uh, indicators of compromise. The, across all their accounts. And today, uh, I mean, a couple of days ago, yesterday they announced Security Hub, where, which was a single pane of glass where multiple providers can feed threat intel. So the operations of SCORE is where Palo Alto has integrated with both Security Hub and Guard Duty. And just with the click of a few buttons, you can make that actionable. And we have a highly automated way of indexing new threats and making it actionable with zero touch, right? And that's that whole point where everything needs to be automated. And that's the only way we're all going to be able to keep pace with the, the requirements for security and our applications in the cloud. I think just to add to it, yes. uh, I, if you actually see to the left, you see the yellow boxes where the actual layer or the infrastructure layer was built. But in parallel, we always started with the blue box also to start automating it. So we designed it. We not only designed it for uh, building it manually, but we said the design also needs to have an automation component. So all, everything was always in parallel. We, we designed it, architected it, automated it, moved to the next layer. 
So I think that was the iteration we kept going. Yep. And, and the last point is we, we need highly repeatable postures, right? It needs to be consistent. We need to be able to reproduce it across different regions. I mean, and you need to have a source of truth. So ha being able to represent all these concepts as code and being able to have it in a repo somewhere, and you can have, and it still goes through your change management, your audit processes, but then you have a very, very strong posture where you're not, hopefully you're more proactive than reactive, and then it allows you to win in AWS and potentially uh, other environments as well. So what we're now going to walk through is we've got a whole bunch of use cases through which we hope to surface the fact that you can build best practices architectures for enterprise-grade applications in the public cloud using security and automation, uh, and that gives you the right posture from an agility perspective. So let's look at this, uh, uh, this diagram, right? And my apologies, it's a little slow, it's small. But this is a, a best practices architecture that we have built at Palo Alto. It's called an ELB sandwich architecture for protecting ingress workloads. But the point over here is the fact that there are a lot of moving pieces. To be able to deploy this kind of an architecture is highly complex, it's not easy. So the point is it's, it's it could potentially manual process. It's slow, delayed, and extended rollouts. And more importantly, it could be error prone, right? So how do we fix this? So infrastructure as code, you know, you can actually, if you can represent this in uh, whether CFTs or Terraform templates, this is now available in our GitHub uh, repo where you can actually, with your AWS account, you can fire up this infrastructure and it can come up in a matter of minutes. I mean, that's the kind of agility that we want and it's also uh, backed by a best practices architecture. So being able to do this is highly beneficial, right? You can see now you can make changes if you need to make changes, but you can actually reason about it as from a code perspective, right? You can see what changes you're making so that's a huge benefit. So now if you have it in this kind of uh, uh, representation, it's highly reproducible. You can point and shoot, you can deploy it in different environments. So now the next use cases are Shankar is going to walk us through a whole series of use cases uh, at Moody's where, but the whole point was that he had a number of uh, security related items that he needed to make sure that were covered. And with the concept, with all these, he's going to walk us through a whole bunch of use cases that leverage and talk about what they have achieved at Moody's. Sure. Thanks, Vinay. So uh, I think for the, the first concepts first, right? So um, mo most of the time, we always think there's security groups, there's knackles. What's the need of a firewall? I think uh, it's not the need of the firewall. I think that's not the way the question has to be thought about. The question has to be thought about how do we achieve defense in depth? It doesn't matter whether it's the firewall. It doesn't matter what cloud-native architecture we use. How do we make sure that every single OSI layer is covered and we are securing a packet at every single OSI layer, being it an app or a TCP IP packet? So I think one of the key things before this design was born is we deployed a VM series firewall. We had some third-party load balancers. We couldn't achieve highly scalable architectures because third-party load balancers don't go between multiple AZs. And then we had to deal with a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of IPsec tunnels. Uh, it was operationally very complex to deal with this. So uh, when I went back to the drawing board and talked to Palo Alto, and we worked very collaboratively to come up with why not put an application load balancer in front of the firewall. So I think that's where uh, the first design was born. And then going back to the defense in depth concept. An application load balancer with AWS construct is a layer seven uh, load balancer which can actually offload SSL. And that was key to us because offloading SSL means you can look, at, look into an encrypted packet and you can actually analyze what are the threats inside the packet. So if you're passing an encrypted packet through the firewall, you're actually reducing the capability of the firewall and actually not inspecting it. But how do we do it in a scalable fashion? Because if you have the firewall always decrypt the packet, you're using a lot of CPU to decrypt it. So that's where we stuck the ALB in front of the firewall. So what happened was an encrypted packet hits the ALB, it gets decrypted, hits the VM series firewall, goes through a series of checks. The series of checks could be uh, routing, basic routing, the, uh, layer three filtering, layer four, um, la layer four identification, then layer seven concepts like user ID, um, then la layer seven concepts like application ID, uh, detecting protocol, and a whole bunch of things, right? And then what we also thought about is 
starting to use the private link. I think I'll talk about uh, the whole concept of the private link when we move through the capabilities. But what is, what is one thing which I want to highlight here is, if you actually take a look at it, um, you would see that there are a lot more orange boxes, so it is completely very cloud native because the, the, the architecture is like a born in the cloud function. The other thing I want to highlight is, typical usage of load balancers will allow you to create a AZ1 as active or AZ2 as passive. Uh, that kind of load balance architecture. But if you actually take a look at it, uh, both the AZs at this time are active. So you are able to use the bandwidth on both the AZs to pass traffic to the backend. So I think that's, that's a very uh, important achievement because yeah, you're not reducing uh, four gigabit bandwidth, but you're actually doubling the bandwidth when you deploy it. So you're actually getting eight, eight gigabit bandwidth to the backend rather than four. So I, I think that's an important concept, and that's also a lot of cost savings. We should go back to the next yeah, slide. Oops. I think we were, sorry about that. Uh, yeah. The next one. Next one. So now, yes, we, we got there. We, we did the first half of the perimeter and the hub design, but how do we actually connect our lines of businesses? To the far right, you see a lot of EC2 instances, a lot of network load balancers, but we took the concept away, me and Vinay met uh, in the last reunion when we took the concept away of the private link which was just announced. We said, how can we use it to better our architecture, make it highly scalable, instead of routing through IPsec tunnels? So that's when we said, why don't we pass the traffic after going from the firewall into the private link? And what that gave us was something very significant. Uh, what it gave us was a highly scalable backend because private link is completely scalable, and the network load balancers wanted to be, the, the lines of business wanted to use network load balancers because that's a construct for them to scale in and scale out if needed. So how do, in the third-party load balance architecture, you, are not, you cannot point to a network load balancer. The reason being, most of the load balancers in Amazon do not have static IPs except for the network one. Um, they, they give you a URL and there needs to be a refresh time for this URL, and sometimes the refresh time is not good. So when there's an auto-scaling uh, event, the refresh time doesn't match the auto-scaling event and the packets start dropping. So it, it, that's not very scalable. So this gave us the scalable architecture. And, the other thing is private link provides an additional layer of security. Private link creates actually an ENI on the VM series side of the firewall and creates an NLB on the other side of the house. So it could be two different accounts, it could be two different VPCs that you're connecting. So what did that give us? That, that took us to the next level, right? So now you could clearly define, go granular on layer three, saying only packets that originate from the firewall can actually traverse to the private link. So you could be more granular. That gave us one more additional layer of control. Then we dropped the packet off at the NLB. What that gave us was at the NLB and at the EC2 instances behind attached to the NLB, the EC2 instances, A, need not be exposed to any other IP other than the NLBs as the source. It does not need to learn any other IPs in the stack except NLB being the source. So if you look at it very step by step, it's very granularly divided and every section is a separate section that can be uh, taken off and rebuilt into a new section. So you could have just the private link and the NLB as a separate section and use it for a different purpose. And you could take the ALB and the VM series firewall and use it some, in, in some other architecture. So what I mean to say is, when a packet traverses through such an architecture, it gets, the headers get modified so many times, uh, for an external attacker, it's very hard to learn every single path. Now, that reduces the attack exposure and gives better, we are bettering security. And moreover, we are also inspecting the payload of every single packet because we have a decrypted packet and we can pass it through private link because now AWS keeps it between, uh, 10, uh, between the 10 addresses, like RFC 1918 addresses, so it's completely private between those two VPCs. So that's a way we could achieve private connectivity between these VPCs. Yeah, and if I may just add a few, just to uh, reiterate and add to some of Shankar's points, which was this is a very significant architecture because uh, it's becoming very popular. It's a variant of the, the transit VPC, if you will, where you have your security hub VPC and then you have your line of business VPCs. And then as Shankar mentioned, you know, we solved a whole number of problems with this kind of an architecture. You have full visibility because as traffic hits the, uh, the, the ELB on the ingress path, 
it hits the VM series where you have full visibility, then it hits the ENI, and then it traverses, as Shankar mentioned, a private link, which is SOC 2 compliant. Yeah. And then so Amazon guarantees the security of that link, and it hits your NLB. And uh, so there are a lot of very, uh, this, and this is a great way of how your line of business applications can actually be built out independently, but the security teams can now rest assured that they have full, full visibility and they stay compliant, right? And secondly, uh, the, the last point that I'd like to make here is all of these have been built out using composable templates, right? So the build out of the VMC, the security hub VPC has, there are templates to build that out. The build out of the private, uh, the build out of the application, the line of business VPCs, there are templates to build that out. And then the building and the connection between the security hub VPC and the uh, LOB VPCs using the private link, all of those are available as uh, Terraform templates. And the point there is it's very easy for you to adopt it and to actually play around it. And the whole point of these templates is to get you started with best practice architectures, and then it's very easy to adapt it to suit your use cases. I think j just to add to the last point to it, uh, when I did touch upon monolithic architectures at, at the beginning, uh, I want to reiterate the concept for uh, co composability, right? Composability was key. One of the things we did was every single uh, component you see was a separate Terraform module. And what we did was we chained all the modules together. And whenever we didn't need a component or we wanted to add a component, we would just unmark that module and deploy the architecture. So it just became easy even operationally to build out, scale in and scale out, and be able to even destroy. And we also made sure that we kept the state file in an S3 bucket so that it, we kind of automated the whole process of build and keeping the state file and moving it around. I think, so going back to this, right, so now we, we did connect the line of business architecture, but we didn't want to stop there because, again, the concept goes back to defense in depth. This provided network connectivity. This provided certain level of layer seven uh, inspection. This also provided certain level of layer, a complete granularity in the layer three inspection. But how do we block IOCs? Because that's the next new problem. Uh, how do I ingest threat feeds into this whole architecture? And that's when, uh, me, me and when I talked, when Guard Duty was released, we, we said, how do we ingest uh, an indicator from uh, any government agency or any indicator from one of your threat feed providers or take Guard Duty feeds, for example, and ingest it in the firewall and actually not reactively learn from Guard Duty and then uh, act on it, but proactively block if Guard Duty just sees it. So that's when we took, we took it to the next level. I, yeah. I think I, I let uh, Vinay talk about the guard duty integration. And the, the other uh, to highlight, uh, to reiterate that is now the point here is, you know, it's always this dance between your application teams and your security teams, right? So oh, this, allows your, uh, my, this allows your application teams to develop their applications. I mean, they're ready, you know, they're, they, they have their deployment frameworks, but the security team still needs the oversight. So this is a great balance and allows the security teams to actually uh, keep pace and actually, rather than being reactive, being more proactive, so your actual line of business gets deployed in a, in a, in a rapid manner. And to come back to, to this point, which is, this is the layer. So we are currently, to recap, right, we've gone through this whole concept of infrastructure as code. That's that first layer. We're now going through, we, we talked about security as code, the ability to configure the VM series firewalls. When you deploy it, you have Terraform templates to actually configure the security policies, the NAT policies, and so on. But now this comes to the operations layer, right? So the, what I've showcased here is the, the guard duty integration. So as Amazon finds new indicators of compromise, what we do is we actually have Terraform templates that will deploy this entire uh, deployment. So Guard Duty sends security alerts to CloudWatch. We have uh, CloudWatch event triggers a, a Lambda function. The Lambda function, what it does is it extracts significant pieces of information out of that uh, indicator of compromise. And what it does is it creates something called a dynamic address group on the VM series firewall. And it, and it assigns a particular tag to it. This dynamic address group is subsequently used in a security policy on the VM series firewall. And a simple way to say is, hey, I want to deny all traffic when an IP, when an originating IP matches this particular um, uh, address group. So 
uh, it'll drop traffic. So any, if, if, an, if a malicious uh, entity is trying to attack or do some kind of reconnaissance on your system, and if it comes from one of the IPs that we are aware of, there is actually it's zero touch. You have complete protection, and this happens automatically. And as we learn new IPs, we add it to the dynamic address group, and this whole process is fully automated. So this is also available. So now we, and as Amazon uh, AWS announced Security Hub, we also have a similar uh, integration with Security Hub to enforce uh, indicators of compromise as new, new campaigns and indicators of compromise are learned. Yeah, and just to add to this, right, one of the, you know, from, from a... Uh, from a daily operations point of view, you turn on guard duty, you are definitely you see alerts that are basically saying you have uh, XIP actually brute forcing you from the past three minutes or four minutes. You have a security group that's actually closed. But how do you actually block this XIP from actually brute forcing the instance? So one of the things, that, that's where this whole guard duty integration comes into place where the, 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 the IP is taken and it's dropped into a session and blocked. But not only that, when the, when, the, when the IP expires out of guard duty, this is automatically cleaned up here because that's a very important point. Today we all can gather a lot of threat feeds, but the threat feed list is growing and growing. But if we don't age it out at the right point, we are actually blocking something that could be reused later. And given it's Amazon, you're probably blocking a 52-dot range for a very long time and not really understanding whether it's still with the attacker or the IP has actually moved to a legitimate business. So I think expiring with confidence is very key uh, in this whole threat intelligence process. That's right. And then the next one is, uh, this Shankar brought this up. He is like, hey, this is great, you know, but guess what? The ALB is crucial to this particular design pattern, but then what happens with the ALB is the ALB does uh, DNAT. So you don't actually see the original uh, source address. I, I beg your pardon. So it does a source net. So you actually don't see the originating. So it, it's, it's no use if I see all these indicators of compromise from guard duty, but I have no visibility if it's sitting behind the, the load balancer because I'm only going to see the private IP of the load balancer. But then Shankar said, hey, do we have a solution for this? Right. So what we did, I think, collaboratively was we took the XFF header that Amazon publishes out of that uh, from when the packet leaves the ALB and mapped it to the user, user ID agent on the, uh, on the Palo Alto. So it picked up the IP as a user and you were able to block it as a user rather than you know, you're not having visibility to it. Now, this gives two things, right? A is the, the real IP is never seen. So you're actually protected from that attacker because that's already ALB and the firewall doing that job. And B is you are, you are also now able to actually know what is the actual source that even tried to attack, perform a certain security attack. So I think that is a very key concept because these two things, one is providing visibility, one is providing defense. I think both put together was very important in, in this whole architecture. And being able to do this was key, right? Because this is going back to that concept of defense in depth. Using native cloud capabilities provided by the load balancer in conjunction with the VM series firewall capabilities to actually make sure that you have continuous uh, protection. So this is a very, very significant slide. So, you know, at Palo Alto, we, we came up with this concept of being able to distribute all of our security capabilities using containers, right? I mean, it's, it's a very, containers are becoming a very easy way to ship code, to deploy code, and so on. So we built out this capability where we believe that all these capabilities can be, if we have this concept of distributable containers, then teams can easily leverage these capabilities. And it so happened that Shankar was able to use this at Moody's to leverage uh, and satisfy different use cases. Yeah, so one of the things we did at Moody's uh, to satisfy this use case was, uh, we, we talked earlier about Terraform templates and how we can go back and use them and how uh, Terraform templates are modularized and things like that. But how difficult is it to have 25 or 30 lines of business adopt Terraform and start using it? This is a hard problem to solve. So what we did was we containerized all those Terraform templates and we literally posted the container as Fargate. Uh, we created a Fargate container. We had the line of business have a cross-account IAM role to trigger this Fargate container that went and built all this stuff. 
So in, in that case, what we limited our blast radius to, we didn't have to give the lines of business access into security uh, VPCs, but we, all, we always gave them a cross-account role to trigger a container and get the whole architecture built. This just means if somebody needs a web-facing property, they never had to talk to us. All they need to do is take the container and run it. And the second thing is we kept iterating the container, so they always deployed the latest code. They never had the old one. So uh, they were always compliant with security at that current date because we would update the Terraform templates and uh, recreate the container and post it to Fargate. Their, their roles will again trigger this and deploy the latest uh, security, you know, security modules, basically. Yeah. And to reiterate some of the benefits, right? I mean, this really surfaces a lot of the agility that your uh, ap application teams need. Security is no longer slowing down the process. You know, they have authorized blueprint policies that are now shipped along with these containers for that particular application. And as and when they're ready, they get deployed. But it, 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 it's, it's a happy marriage, to, uh, to put it in one way, because now the app teams have that ability. They can't complain anymore to say, hey, my security teams are slowing me down. And the security teams have all the oversight and the, uh, and the visibility that they need. And, and everything is uh, highly auditable. I think the auditable factor is key, especially uh, for Moody's, since we are a financial entity. Uh, being auditable is, is very key. So, if you run a Terraform template from a, a local desktop, it's very least auditable because um, you have to look at network traffic, you'll have to look at API calls on Amazon. You're, you're looking at 10 different things versus a cross-account role that just triggers this container. So you exactly know who triggered that cross-account role. It's very easy to go back and say, this is the event that actually triggered it. Yeah. So, I want to talk about the general Moody setup on how we have our entire networking, IAM, and all other features built into our security stack. So uh, how does Moody's look to the outside world is this way. So what we have is a couple of things here. We have an Ingress security VPC. So uh, all those slides you saw in the beginning where you had the ALBs and the line of business actually fit in the left-hand most box, which is Ingress Security. Then you have the application VPC where actually the web server sit, um, where actual the lines of business are operating. Then we had, we separated out the Ingress and Egress for a very significant reason. We just didn't want overlap of rules. We wanted to keep it extremely separate and we wanted different bandwidths for different applications. So we didn't want uh, a very sensitive application to go down because there was a large file transfer out. So we kept this whole bandwidth separation, and we also, it's also a good practice to keep ingress and egress in a different uh, security model. The other thing was we, we built one more thing in this equation, which is the security hub. So what does the security hub have? It has like a couple of firewalls. The reason is uh, this was the control between the Moody's cloud environment and the Moody's on-prem environment. So what it gave us, it gave us complete network segmentation. Basically, we, we could go back and see how a particular instance in a certain VPC talked to, which, of, which are the IPs that it talked to back on-prem. So I think that was extremely key because now we not only had the knowledge of things coming in, we knew what came in, what went out, and what's coming back to us. So this, this gave us the three-prong visibility of, uh, you know, one is you're now having the defense in depth concept of all ingress controllers, but then you have, you're now enforcing defense in depth on the entire architecture stack. I think that was extremely key to us. Yeah, and I, a lot of these aspects, parts of this uh, architecture are also deployed using a lot of these templates. So yeah. your ability to reproduce it across different regions. Yeah, right? so uh, I think to again reiterate what I'm saying, anything you look on the screen as templatized is terraformized. So basically what happens is uh, when we want an ingress security VPC built in Sydney, we just play a particular Terraform template. It builds the firewalls, it builds the load balancers, it builds the NLBs, it builds the private links, it builds the whole stack. We, when we want an egress setup in a particular region, we just play that stack, S similar to, again, security hub. So everything in this template can be is automated, and moreover, to be honest, this whole stack can be built in a matter of hours because it, it, it literally is waiting for the API to take action. That's, that's all is the time, the execution time of the API. I think this is one more use case where we had an, uh, we had an issue where 
we, after we built this, uh, users wanted to use Kubernetes EKS with uh, this whole pattern. The issue is, how do you load balance something that's not an EC2 instance? Luckily, what we did was, we used the native NLB to add, because EKS works with an NLB by default, and the NLB is already connected to the private link. What we did was we took that same concept, but we, we did some minor alterations. The alterations are this, right? So by default, when you spin up an EKS cluster, it spins up a load balancer. So we wanted to avoid that, because we already had a private link drop into that VPC. We wanted to attach it to the existing load balancer. So what we did was we spun up all these clusters as node port, and we had a Lambda function that would attach it to the load balancer. Now we were, and we tagged these Kubernetes cluster, and the tags were pulled by the VM series firewall. So that's where uh, the whole uh, importance of the firewall and the importance of tagging an instance correctly came in, because now a new Kubernetes cluster could be built, and the firewall rules for this cluster are already put in, and all the tags match, and we are inspecting all the traffic at layer seven, and this acted like it doesn't matter whether there's a container on the EC2 at the back end, we will always be able to inspect traffic and do the same layer four to layer seven controls completely apply. And this goes back to that other architectural pattern where you have your hub VPC, which is providing all the visibility and the policy control, and then you're bringing on line of business applications, and in this particular case, it happened to be EKS. EKS. Right? And, and believe me, so this, the same concept works with ECS. It's not uh, any container environment that sits behind in this architecture. It would just work. As long as you can attach the container environment to a network load balancer, it should work. I think this is one of the uh, last and final things I want to cover. This, I know, is a very heavy slide, uh, and it looks very complicated. It's probably not very complicated if you start walking through it. Um, the left-hand portion of this is the VM series firewall and the same ALV architecture, but we were solving for a very unique problem. The problem was, we. These VPCs did not want to be restricted by IP space. Uh, we were issuing a lot of IPs to a lot of regions and a lot of VPCs. So we were in the fear that we are going to lose out IP space, and we are not going to be able to handle auto-scaling events from all these lines of business. So how do we solve that problem? Because we need to inspect security, but also need to make it routable, and also need to make sure that the lines of business have the proper control. So one of the things we did was, the, the concept of private link and NLB kicked in where um, the key concept of it is they are routed by their own and not really by network. What that means is you don't have to have the same network on both the sides of the private link to actually traverse the private link. You don't need to have the private link or your VPC routing table learn the other end to actually go to the other end. You can have the private link connect one-to-one. -one. This is more like, think about the concept of a static route. This is more like a static route. You just create a private link, it creates a static route to the other end. The, this side of the world does not need to know what is on the other side, but it will just route traffic. So we took this concept. We said, if you look at the left-hand box, it says on the Moody's network, and you look at the right-hand box, it says non-Moody's network. It just means that you could have 10.0.0.8 network here, and you could have the same exact network on the other side, because we are going to do a static route to the other end. Now, this takes static route to the next level, because in a static route, you can route from place A to place B, but they have to be unique IPs. In this concept, they don't have to be unique IPs. They can be the same exact IP, because AWS is doing the translation for you. It, it, once you drop it in the private link, AWS knows what is the other end of the NLB, and it will drop the packet at the other end, independent of whatever the IP is. So we took that concept, and we said, we're going to create a completely non-Moody's network front-ended by firewalls that are on Moody's network. So traffic came on Moody's network to, and went through these NLB private links to a non-Moody's network to pretty much a network that's hidden, right? Because this really doesn't exist to the external world. There is no public access to this network except through the firewall. So those EC2 instances were not even, those EC2 instances could scale as much as they want. They could use a 10.0.0.8 address. They could even be 16,000 EC2 instances. It doesn't matter. We, we could scale it. We, all we have to look for is the bandwidth, the amount of traffic the VM series can handle to um, actually scale in for a scale-in and scale-out event. Given that, 
there was the other concept of, okay, so we built something on a non-Moody's network. How do I get to it? So because I, I know external customers can get to it with ALB because I'm exposing an AT443, but what about SSH and RDP? I, I need to go and configure these instances. How do I do it? I think to solve that problem, we took it to the, uh, what we did was we used the same concept. You see the on-premise box on the left-hand side, that was an on-premise Moody's network. What happened was we created two network load balancers, or you could even create two ENIs, private ENIs, and they, they were on the 10 network, which was already routable, because the VPC is on the Moody's network. So you didn't have to have a public facing, but you could route to a 10 network. So we routed to a 10 network, which means there's a, there's a very good um, security model here, because the, no traffic actually traverses the internet because it's going from a 10 network to 10 network, which is pretty much an MPLS or whatever type of connection, VPN or whatever you have. Then we, we, we went to the VM series firewall, and then we created a private link to an NLB. You see the blue boxes at the bottom, the three blue boxes uh, for, of the EC2 instances, they were the bastion host. So what we did was we created a bastion host model. We took an uh, NLB and made it listen on SSH, and what we did was we kept the traffic completely private. So if you actually take a look at it from the on-premise network, you actually SSH into the VM series firewall, which is actually inspecting even SSH because now we are inspecting protocol. So just make sure it's really SSH and not SFTP. Nobody's transferring files, but it's actually SSH because both work on the same port. That's where the VM series firewall kicks in. And then we took it to uh, the NLB and dropped it off at the NLB that went to the uh, Bastion host, and people could SSH from that Bastion host to the rest of the EC2 instance and configure anything. But there was still one problem. How, how do you do onboarding and offboarding of accounts? Because you now have a non-connected Moody's network, so what happens if a user no longer should be accessing these instances, but is now on the internal network and has access to these instances but should not be accessing? How do we uh, add an additional layer of control? The way we added it is we had the VM series firewall connected to the user ID agent in, in a different VPC where the domain controllers were running. So what we did was we connected this together and we pulled all the users in. So what this gave us, anybody from on-premise network tries to SSH, the VM series firewall with the user ID agent capability is going to look up that user. If the user exists in a certain AD group or is allowed to SSH, then it gives the pass or the ticket to say, okay, you can go further. So now we not only had protocol inspection, but we also had user inspection. So we inspected the user, then put him on a completely private network back into the Bastion host. And then, and then that user could go ahead and SSH into all these hosts. Now, to the complete right-hand corner, what you see is uh, the SSO and the IAM and a whole bunch of components. Why did we do that? The reason we did that is, so now, a lot of IAM permissions in the encapsulated environment, what we call, which is basically not connected to us, is uh, run by lines of businesses. We wanted to make sure the security groups were now not open where there was a complete bypass of the firewall and people could directly go to the host. Because the whole concept relies on you SSH to the firewall from the 10 network. But what if you are a user, but you are SSHing from outside? you probably still get in because you're on the Moody's network, you're still a user, you're a Moody's employee. But how do you do this? So what we did was we said we, we need to auto-enforce security groups to make sure they are only listening to 10 network traffic. They're never listening to an external traffic. They never accept external connections. So what we did was we used you know, tools similar to Dome 9, Evident, and a whole bunch of other tools, and we basically started auto-enforcing the security group in, so we created a blueprint template, and we also had an SSO to it, which means to say, if a user is off-boarded, or if there is an emergency termination of a certain user, the user could not go in and change the security group and still have access to that host. Which means to say, if, if the user is terminated, when the user tries to log in into a, a, an Evident or a Dome9 or one of these uh, platforms, the user is automatically off-boarded, so the user will not be able to log in to make that change to that security group. So this ensured the additional layer of access control security, which we wanted to enforce. So with that, we also combined that access control as the only IAM policy that could modify security groups. So we had a deny for anybody else modifying it, 
except for like these platforms modifying it. So that added the next level of control in there because now your access to the security group is completely controlled. The, to, to add benefit to this, right, so we used a NAT gateway because this is for internet egress. We didn't want to get heavy on this because these workloads were supposed to be highly scalable, highly, um, highly agile workloads. So what we did was we didn't want to stick another firewall in there because we were already in there and this was a network that was not visible to the internet. It was only visible to the internet through the VM series firewall. So we had uh, our security stack, uh, all the softwares of the security stack hosted on the S3 bucket and things, like, things along the lines like endpoint agents and you know, um, CrowdStrike traps of the world installed on the endpoint agents. The software be available in the S3 bucket and we also provided the scripts to the lines of business where when they start an instance, it could actually go in and download these software and actually build the instance with these softwares. And then we are, most of our endpoint agents actually go out to the internet directly. They are all SaaS services. So we gave permissions to go for SaaS. Then we logged the entire, uh, entire cloud trail and every instance and activity on every instance. So that gave, uh, access to SIM, which is like Splunk and everything, you could do log forwarding to it. And the last part is, it also gave internet access. So that is a kind of um, network we built for uh, extremely highly agile workloads, workloads which require to be scaled, and workloads which require lines of business to have more controls in IAM, and us to have less, but we still maintain the complete visibility, auto-enforce access, uh, single sign-on users, and a whole bunch of controls to it. With that, I think um, we are ready to take some questions. Um, I'm I sure. I just have uh, one more. I just wanted to pull all this information together. Thank you, Shankar. Uh, and we've talked about a lot. And uh, I think the message that we wanted to convey is all the different types of best practices, architectures that you can leverage, maybe some gotchas, how those, those can be solved. And it's this whole concept of uh, utilizing native cloud security from Amazon coupled with uh, the cloud-native integrations provided by uh, security vendors such as Palo Alto. But the key stakes are because security is always a key table stake, right? But you, you can't win if you don't have any of this automated. And that was the key point, right? All most, I mean, I, I would argue like 90% of what we've talked about here is automated. And, and hopefully, best of all is these are available to you guys. So, and uh, uh, please feel free to reach out. I think our contact information is out here. We're happy to share all these templates with uh, you guys. And hopefully, you can leverage it and adapt it to suit your workloads, right? So I just want to spend a couple more minutes and then we'd love to take some questions. I just want to summarize, right? So we all a lot of this was built on the foundation. I like to think about building blocks, right? The foundation was the Palo Alto VM series firewall. We like to think about it as a platform, you know, and this coupled with the native security capabilities of AWS really, really gives you a strong uh, security posture. And now let's build out the pillars, right? These are these infrastructure templates as we talked about. They're cloud native templates. You know, we build out of the cloud native tunnels. You know, it's automation with the, the Terraform security provider. So you have a single DSL, arguably, to rule both your deployment configuration. Um, then you convert in this into DevSecOps. I know we didn't cover this in this particular session, but uh, feel free to reach out to me. I have a I, I have a, a demo where we show how you can leverage all these concepts to actually move from DevOps to DevSecOps. Uh, it's highly extensible, and this is his concept, and I have to give Shankar full credit here. He forced us to build these composable components, right, where, you know, monolithic stuff is just not going to work. You know, you want to be able to use small bits, pieces that do just a, a few things and then use that to build your, uh, your infrastructure out. And then the beams, as I like to think about it, is all, as I, as I alluded to, is this composable cloud security. And last but not least is the cupola, which is, I mean, leveraging all these primitives, this kind of a posture, allows enterprises to have uh, cloud success with security. So what are the key takeaways, right? It's proven adoption at Moody's to secure uh, line of business production, oops, my bad, uh, applications. Uh, it's a framework developed with real-world use cases and workflows, and it's collaboration based on our work with our partners, uh, our customers, Amazon, uh, readily available templates. It's very easy to adopt and use, uh, highly composable, and it's highly adaptable. 
and there are well-defined integration points, so it can be uh, woven into different aspects of your uh, infrastructure deployment, security deployment uh, postures. Uh, that's, that's our last slide. Uh, you have our contact information there. Feel, please feel free to reach out to us. And we have a few minutes left, so if anybody has any questions, please uh, feel free to walk up to the mics and ask. Can you please walk up to the Can mic? Can you uh, use the mic? Put the last slide. We yeah. want to take a picture, we couldn't. Thank you. Yeah. If there are no other questions, yeah, please feel free to use the mic, sir. Yeah, hi. Um, Adrian Panic um, from TD. Uh, so we're kind of going through the same journey with the uh, virtual pans and stuff um, in the cloud. Just curious, um, uh, Palo Alto bought out the Redlock, I believe, and Redlock yeah. provides the same type of services. So just curious if you had any opinions on that. And obviously you've been down this journey for a while, because I know we've been down it for about two years now, kind of building everything at this point. But would the uh, Redlock replace this architecture going forward? Absolutely not. So uh, thank you. I, I just so that I make sure I'm answering the right question. So Palo Alto recently acquired a company called uh, Redlock, where we provide full uh, API-based security for your entire uh, AWS uh, posture across all the different AWS services. And the question is, does that acquisition uh, replace any of this? The answer, the simple answer is no. So we, we look at it as uh, uh, three ways in which we provide security. The, the VM series firewall provides the inline security from a network, you, you know, we see all your network traffic so we can give you that deep security from an inline perspective. Redlock provides the API-based security where we, we, we handle compliance, config change management, uh, bad configurations and so on. We, we raise the alerts, the ability to remediate, so we give you all those capabilities at Redlock. And then the, the last piece of that puzzle is the host where we have a, a product called Traps which can run on the host. So, so that's the way we look at our security posture. It's this full platform that is made up of three high-level products. We have a lot of products, but it's inline security using the VM series firewall, Redlock giving you the full API-based security for all the cloud services, and then your security on the host for malware detonation, detection, and so on using this uh, traps agent, as we call it. So those are the three areas, and we have our footprint everywhere, so we can give you all this telemetry on what's going on in your interview, complete visibility. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Are there any other questions? Uh, okay. If, if not, thanks so much for yeah, attending. Yeah, thank you very much, everybody. Yeah.